I started reading your book, by the way. It's really great. And the thing that I like the most about it is I think it allows people who are musically inclined, it gives them a natural doorway, such a natural doorway into that into practice. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's very cool. You are listening to Wolf in Tune, and this is Richard Wolfie Wolf. My guest right now is the Grammy-nominated producer, songwriter, and remixer, Ned Shepard. Welcome to the uh, Wolf in Tune podcast, Ned. Thank you. Thank you for having me on here. And I must praise your courage in agreeing to uh, submit yourself to the brutal third-degree grilling with which we're known. Thank you so much for coming. <laughs> I'm ready. So I'm looking over your credits here. Of course, i got to introduce you to everybody. And if I'm going to list them all, you will be here all day. So I'm just, don't be insulted. I'm going to leave out a lot of them, but I'm going to just pronounce the most famous ones, starting with David Guetta. These are people you've worked with, right? Yes. Tiesto, yes. Nadia Ali, B.T., Fetty Legrand, Madonna, Lady Gaga, and did I mention Bruno Mars? No, I think that's what you got a Grammy nomination for, remixing yeah. uh, the song Locked Out of Heaven. Yes, that's correct. So this is all accurate, right? You didn't make this up. This is all real. Didn't make it up, no. That's really very impressive. But that's not why you're here. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> I mean, and it's part of the reason why you're here. But you're also here because I heard about you from our mutual friend, Zandy Barry, who said that you kind of introduced him to the whole experience of sitting quietly in meditation. And that piqued my interest, and I figured I, I have to meet you. i got to talk to you, find out who you are. But uh, let's start with a little shop talk, if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. So these artists are incredible that you've worked with. Um, but let's start a little bit at the beginning. So what is, or the middle actually, I don't want to know too much about your childhood, but what's your real first professional experience in the music business? Jeez, uh, first professional experience. Well, when I was in college, I've been playing piano since I was a kid and I got interested in electronic music um, because I spent a year in France um, when I was in high school and I came back and became totally obsessed with DJs and um, learning how to produce. So um, when I was in college, I had already been producing for a couple of years using Pro Tools, Digi001, if anyone, <laughs> if you know what that was, remember what that was. Yeah, I remember. And uh, yeah, it was cool. And, and um, I was in Montreal, I was going to McGill University and I met... At the time, there was a guy DJing in Montreal uh, named Sultan. And I went and saw a couple of my favorite DJs, and he was really cool. He was playing great music, and I just liked his vibe. And I went up to him after one of the shows he was playing, and I just introduced myself and gave him a blank or a burned CD that I had of some music I was making with a friend of mine. And he loved it. And so the two of us became friends and we started, you know, hanging out and eventually made some music. And the first thing that we really did together got signed by a pretty famous DJ named John Digweed and his label was called Bedrock. Mm -hmm. And so actually the track was signed by another person, a smaller label, and he ended up with this guy named Kevin Clark and Kevin became one of my really good friends, mostly because what happened was that that track was supposed to come out on Kevin's label and then John Digweed heard it and John was a big deal. And so when Kevin found out that John heard the track and actually wanted it for his label, he said, you should give it to John. That'll be better for you. And so we did. And, and Kevin and I became great friends and track came out on John's label. And that was the beginning of my partnership with Sultan. Was this a dance record? Yes, it was definitely an electronic record. It was pretty chill. It was a pretty ch mellow record. Um, so it wasn't, you know, necessarily representative of what we would go on to do later but at the time it was something that we were really into so and did you play keyboards on this or what is your yeah. instrument okay yeah yeah i play okay. keyboards and like i said i've been playing piano since i was a kid and then when i was 16 and i came back from france i got a synthesizer i got a korg n364 at the recommendation i had a piano teacher and he was 
guy named Dennis Anderson, who is such an amazing person. And I came back from France and I'm like raving about, I made him listen to all this music. You know, I was listening to like Fatboy Slim and Moby and the Chemical Brothers and Paul Confold. And I'm like, you got to hear this stuff, you know? And I had been playing like jazz and blues and all this other stuff. And so he's listening to it. And he goes, after about 20 minutes, he goes, oh, you got to get a synthesizer. And I was like, what's a synthesizer? He's like, that's how all these sounds are made. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I got a Korg and I started programming, you know, songs and making tracks just on the Korg and just listening to records and trying to understand like, how did they make this? You know, how did they use the sound and just exploring that? And a lot of those sounds on that Korg are actually on that first record that we did, which is really nice. <laughs> you know, some of the pad sounds and the bass sounds. So yeah, it's cool. Yeah, that Korg was a great instrument in its time. Yeah, for sure. So what happened after that? What's the next step? So I was actually in a group with my, another group with my friend at the time, um, and it was called Digital Witchcraft, and we were putting out records. And then me and Sultan were collaborating. And I just started DJing, originally opening up for Sultan and other DJs that would come to town. And then we were putting records out. And slowly... Over a few years, you know, we started releasing more and more records and I started DJing more and more gigs. And that kind of just over time, it was very organic. We just got along really well. And, um, you know, we really wanted to just make music for DJs to play and, and go out and DJ ourselves. And as it started growing, we started meeting more artists and collaborating with more people and meeting more DJs. And the cool thing about electronic music is that DJs serve kind of like a double role in the sense that they promote your music because they play your music. They like it. They play your music. And and that's like the best promotion that you can get when like a really big DJ starts playing your music. So Sultan was kind of already a little bit more established. And then when we were working together, you know, a lot of big DJs would just play our music and they started bringing him on tour. And then he started touring. And then some of them started bringing me on tour. And then I started touring and we would play together. And it just kind of blossomed into this thing. And then electronic music around 2010, 2011, in the U.S. was like really took off and we had been kind of in the right place at the right time for that. And so, you know, that's when major labels started hitting us up to remix their artists, you know, Bruno Mars and Madonna and uh, Robin and all these people because dance music started getting really popular in a mainstream way. And we were, we had already established ourselves. So it was kind of just lucky that we were sort of there at the right time. Because when we started, like nobody cared, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we started in like 2000. 2003 like it you know it wasn't cool nobody cared everybody wanted something else um but then you know seven eight years later all of a sudden it was like hey we love this can you guys remix this track and we were like yes sure so it was cool it was really fun for us to be able to, to finally start to get a little bit of recognition from the mainstream music industry yeah but before that you were making money by touring right and djing yeah exactly was it international did you go to like the those famous uh, rave spots around the world? Yeah, I mean, we we played in the U.S. some, but the best parties were always, I mean, the first tour that I did alone, I think was four shows in Brazil, and then the next one was like four shows in India. So like right away, it was really international. And we did all these parties in Eastern Europe, and we played Ministry of Sound, and we played in Ibiza, and yeah, we played like Romania, you know, like driving five hours on the back roads of in Transylvania and showing up at this club and being like, where are we? And then you walk in and there's like 2,000 people and it's amazing. So mm-hmm. um, we had really, we're having a really good time actually. And it was really exciting for us because we're, you know, I was in my 20s and just getting to travel to all of these places and get exposed to this global, very, very global international scene. And so by the time things started picking up in the US, like we had, yeah, we had been on the road for a few years and we were ready for it, but also we had had the experience of kind of really being ingrained in the culture too. Whereas I think a lot of, some people in the US had been doing it for a really long time, but there was a whole new generation of kids who got into it. It was like a new thing for them. Yeah, that must've been a, a great high because in the United States, you said people didn't really care. Maybe in the United States they didn't, but all over the world, there was a huge audience for what you were doing. Yeah, totally. And, and we were actually in Montreal at the time and Montreal, because of the French influence was always more forward thinking. And so I don't think we would have started and been able to go as far as we did without the influence of Montreal, because 
they had these after hours clubs that would open. I mean, when I moved to Montreal and I was, you know, 18 or 19 years old, I remember they had five after hour clubs Then they were packed every weekend and they would open at like two or three in the morning. And mm -hmm. the DJs would come on at like four or five and they would stay open till about 12 and everybody would go there and it was just such a thing. And so learning about that, showing up and listening to DJs play and then eventually playing those places really gave us the, and long sets, you know, like four or five, six hour sets, like really wow. gave us the sort of introduction into what like clubbing meant in like a global terms, not in terms of like just the sort of what you would imagine in certain places. And then there were cities like New York and LA and all these in Chicago and places where that was also happening, you know? So mm -hmm. it was cool. So when you were doing this in Montreal, what drugs were people taking? Was this ecstasy time or what was it? Yeah. I mean, I was never that into drugs, so I don't know, but definitely everybody was smoking weed. But yeah, there was a lot of pills and all kinds of drugs. For, I think people like to do it to stay up. But I, you know, I was actually sober at the time, completely sober when I started DJing. Not because I had had any addiction issues, but just because I was sort of taking a break and six months turned into a year, which turned into two years, which turned into a few years. So I would, on the weekends between my classes, I would go out to these after hours clubs at like three in the morning by myself, sometimes like totally sober and just sit on the speaker and listen to the music. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like everybody around me was like totally high, but like I, I was so into the music that we were just on the same page. So it wasn't weird at all. It was a really good energy. You know, I mean, sometimes you'd be in a situation where things you could tell there was weird energy and I wouldn't necessarily stay there. But most of the time in the rave scene, like the energy was always really good. So whether or not someone you couldn't even tell, I mean, you have to assume most of the time people were sort of high, but mm -hmm. you couldn't really tell because everyone was just smiling and just the music was good and the vibe was nice. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was the, the club wasn't going to close. So there was like no there was no rush, you know, alcohol wasn't being served. So it was just kind of like you're there and you're there till whenever you want to go. You just hang out, you know. So did you ever DJ at the same gig with David Guetta? Yeah. So we, our manager at the time was booking him in Canada. And so we, he put us on some shows. And so we met David and we became friendly with him. And we played a lot of his shows, his tours in Canada in like 2000, probably nine or 10 when things started really picking up for him. Mm -hmm. And we played with him and he was so great. He was a very lovely person. And we would always send him music and he would always play play our music and stuff. And we wow. talked about collaborating, but nothing happened at all for a few years just because that's sometimes how the way it goes. Right. But, but then when we moved to Los Angeles in 2012, we did a songwriting session with a, a, an amazing songwriter named Bassie. She came over and we were like, let's write a song. And, and I'd had this idea of like, Sultan and I were always like really, really big fans of sampling. And the way that like hip hop guys like RZA and DJ Premier, and then like house guys like Fatboy Slim and our man Van Helden, like how they were able to find a sample and then speed it up or like manipulate it. And they always had like just the best taste. But doing that is like really difficult, like finding a great sample and then like manipulating it just in the right way to create that perfect four second loop or whatever is like, it's a really hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. You have to have a great ear. And so I was like, what happens if we do it the other way? What happens if we, if we make our own sample, make something that sounds like it's a sample and then we speed it up, what mm -hmm. will happen then? And so we told this idea to Vassie and she was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And so she had some, some ideas. And so we recorded her really slowly and at like, you know, hundred beats a minute over some like, you know, funky Shaka Khan kind of drums. Mm -hmm. And she has a real soulful voice. So and we pitched it up and sped it up. So as if we were sampling it, but we just mm -hmm. did it all. And mm -hmm. it came out to this really great hook. And then we changed some chords around and we sent it to uh, a guy that we knew named Eitan at, at Warner. And he he was like, this is amazing. Like, this is a, this is a hit. And we thought it'd be cool for like Flowrider because at the time Flowrider was like really, really big. And we were like, yeah, let's do some, you know, we'll do a pop record and we'll just be the writer. So he didn't, Flowrider didn't end up cutting it and his album was already done and it kind of sat around and then David heard it. And it, at that time it was just kind of this acapella with these chords on it. And he heard it and he was like, guys, this is amazing. <laughs> and it was funny cause like we could have emailed it to him. We didn't think he would like it, but mm -hmm. you know, he heard it, he heard it through his A&R and he loved it. And then he went off and did his amazing production on it. And it was really cool to, to see him where he took it because 
he's a super perfectionist and he would like we'd be playing with him in las vegas and he'd like play a new version of it and he'd be like guys this is the version and then like a month later we'd play with him again he'd be like no i did a different version you know and like it was funny but it ended up coming out and doing super well so well you know if you had emailed it to him he may not have liked it but his a and r people played it for him so yeah it's funny maybe that gave him a different spin you know yeah it's so funny how the way things work out like that like you can never control it but but it did work out really well and it was also just we always laugh about it because it was something that happened so quickly and it was something that we almost didn't do and i guess you just never know with songwriting like where a song is going to end up yeah you know it's interesting you're talking about creating your own sample and this is what 2010 you're talking about yeah we did this in about 2012 yeah 2012 so in the very early 90s you know sampling started really in hip-hop i think run dmc was the first group to uh to sample with uh an sb 1200 i think that's what it was pretty sure some version of that and we had two seconds of time to sample and my partner and I had the same attitude back in the early 90s. Uh, you know, we're musicians. We'll create our own samples yeah. and not rely on sampling other people, other records. So it's it's interesting that how many years later you're doing that in, <laughs> in a different genre totally, right? In, yeah, in yeah. electronic music. I mean, and we did it because we didn't, like, I just remember trying to search the internet for cool soul samples. And, like, I was just like, I can't or records, you know, and I was just like, I'm not as good as those guys. I can't do it. We just do it. You know, I, I did it like I had the idea because it was it was almost out of necessity. It was almost like we weren't good enough of a, you know, crate digger kind of to do it. And I just looked up so much to, you know, Basement Jacks and um, DJ Shadow and like all these people who are just so I mean, it's amazing when you listen back to the records that they sampled. It's so incredible that they were able to pick out those things. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so it was almost out of necessity. It was like, well, we can't do that as well as they can, but we can we can play instruments, so let's try some stuff. Well, it's also nicer on the royalty ends. Yes. Yes, is. absolutely. So talk about Tiesto a little bit. I mean, Tiesto as a DJ alone commanded huge audiences. And yeah. So how did that come about? What was that like working with Tiesto? Same thing, you know, just slowly over time, he was playing our music and was super supportive, just like very kind in terms of being like, I love this track. Can you send me more music? And then he signed some tracks to his label. Um, Originally something Sultan had done like early on when we first started working together. And so they had a friendship. And then when we started working together, he signed this track in 2012 called Walls that became a really big song for us. And he put it on this compilation. And this was kind of the moment when EDM or, you know, that EDM term came about and electronic music really had exploded in America. And the, his, this compilation he'd done called Club Life came out and our song was on it. And we still get messages to this day that, you know, people were like, this song got me into this style of music. And it, it was just the right time for that. And so, yeah, he was just championing it and really pushing it. And so then he was like, I love this. Can we do something together? And so we did a track with him with the same singer for his album that came out the year after that. And, you know, he was just, he's just a, he's just a rock star. You know, he's a, he's a really good guy and he's got a great ear and he, he's always championed, young upcoming artists and that's what a lot of people don't know and this was with like for no money he'd just be like yeah come play the show with me or like come do this and it wasn't like we were on you know his management or something like that like he just was like this is cool i like it so no it's great yeah yeah so i'm assuming you did a, a remix for lady gaga i see lady gaga was listed yes and did she call you after the remix and tell you how much she liked it no, I wish she had. Nelly Furtado did do that. She she sent us a message on Twitter and said that she really loved it, which was cool. But Lady Gaga did not. A lot of remixes, you know, you don't get a chance to meet the artist. I know. Um, unfortunately, but it was really cool. I, I She's an incredible artist. And the funny thing about that track is, you know, I was a fan of hers just in terms of she's from New York and I'm from New York and uh, I liked her personality and I liked her you know, just like her chutzpah, like her, just the way that she was. And like, mm-hmm. but when I heard the acapella of the song that we remixed, that was when I kind of really got it. Cause I think 
I just took it for granted. You know, you hear someone's songs on the radio and you think, oh yeah, 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 you know, like they're great, whatever, but you don't really know. And then when you, when you hear the vocals alone, you're just like, wow, this is, this is the real deal. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, so that was a very special moment where I realized how important this, the power of a vocalist is, you know, when someone just has like a really strong, clear voice that that is what people connect to. Yes. Uh, I don't think I, it totally had clicked for me before that. And then when I heard that, I, I remember looking at Sultan and being like, oh, this is crazy. And he's like, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it makes sense. The human ear is going to yeah. be attracted to the human voice first yeah. above everything else. The most. The most, right? And then, and then you can, you know, narrow it down. So the female human ear will be attracted to the female human voice. Yeah. More than, you know, et cetera, et cetera, because that's what you relate to. Um, yeah. That makes total sense, right? Yeah. And also, I was always kind of interested in weird voices. And I think I didn't really appreciate the power of a super strong, clear voice that, like, is able to cut through a lot of frequencies and is mm. really stands out, like, the way her voice does. I mean, it's so powerful. And maybe that was obvious to everybody else when they heard it, but it took <laughs> I guess it took me a couple of years to catch up. But but then again, you don't need a. I mean, Madonna doesn't have a strong voice. Another no, person you worked with. Yeah, huh? same same kind of thing. Just a remix. We never got a chance to talk to her, but I mean, Madonna. Madonna just has two things. She has great taste, and she's a great songwriter, and she's always worked with really good people. And her voice, I mean, her voice is is kind of always sort of perfect for the songs. You know, like I don't. Yeah, she's just has got a lot of character. But yeah, it's different than Lady Gaga, for sure. It's the way it's laid in the track, the way it's EQ'd, the way it's compressed. So that And I think it's just yeah, and I think it's it's more than that too. It's her melodies and her her sense of her sense of taste, like when to come in, when to be upbeat, when to be mellow. Mm -hmm. You know, like she's, I was always a big Madonna fan growing up and she had so many different kinds of tracks. So when we went to the Grammys, we she was there and I literally, my sister was there with us and we literally were waiting to get our pictures taken on the red carpet and I turn around and I literally bumped into her and she was very tiny and mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and we were there and I, my sister and I just looked at each other and we were like, oh wow. Like, and she just was like, excuse me and like walked through. Um, oh, I would have done a Larry David and said, hey, I'm the one that remixed, you know, yeah, yeah. your record and uh, nice to meet you. Yeah, no, yeah. there was none of that. It was me just like staring at her being like, uh. <laughs> so you, you, you had this very, or you've had and you're having a very picaresque life wandering around the world, meeting and working with incredible artists and DJing at crazy parties and, and huge stadiums, et cetera, et cetera. And all this time, deep down inside, you are a Zenist. Yeah. So tell us, so tell us how did this come about? How did you start practicing, I'm assuming, Zazen, the Zen mode of meditation? Yeah, I, I think they kind of sort of happened simultaneously when I was in France, when I came back from France, I was a senior in high school and I had had a year away from everything that I knew growing up in New York uh, in a very, you know, sort of privileged upbringing in New York. And I had had this amazing experience living with another family in France and um, traveling around and experiencing all kinds of things. And so it kind of caused a bit of an existential crisis because uh, I just realized that there was a whole other way of living than what I was taught. So that was sort of the beginning. And so my discovering electronic music and my discovering kind of searching for some kind of meaning or some kind of other alternative way of living kind of happened at the same time. They're both, for me, at the root of that came at that experience at 16 or 17 years old. And so I got interested in meditation. My piano teacher actually was also into it. And so he turned me on to some things. And I, I traveled before I went to college and I went to India learned some meditation there and when I got to McGill I didn't really want to I didn't like any of the classes that I took except for religious studies because I think at that time I was really interested in making music and learning how to DJ and 
the only other thing that was piquing my interest was reading about, you know, Buddhism and Hinduism. And so I just started taking religious studies classes in college. And luckily for me, without knowing it, McGill had a really amazing department. And there was one teacher there named Victor Sogan Hori, Professor Hori, I call him. And he is a Japanese Canadian man who was a monk, uh, PhD from Stanford, and also was a monk in Japan for, I think, 12 or 14 years. So I took all of his classes <laughs> and he explained Zen and I did, I started doing Zazen with him. Actually, he offered on the floor of the chapel in the, in the religious studies building, he would do one hour of Zazen from 7am to 8am every day, Monday through Friday for whoever wanted to come. And so I began sitting with him and I took all of his classes and he was able to explain some of those very difficult things in a way that spoke to me. At the same time, I met Canadian woman who had been studying or practicing Zen for, you know, 25 years in, in the U.S. And she had a, a Zen center, a small temple in Montreal. And I began practicing with her. And yeah, so that was all happening, you know, when I was like my third, fourth year of college. And then, so I was really getting into DJing and really getting into, you know, learning how to do Zen practice and learning how to meditate and, and sit. So the, the Canadian mentor um she was canadian right yes i mean when i started meditating at that time most of the zen instructors were from japan mm -hmm. and they were very patriarchal very strict mm -hmm. what was she like uh she i mean still i she's still very much my teacher i'm in touch with her all the time one of the things i liked so much about her and i say this i told this to several other people is that i had met other Buddhist teachers and monks, and she struck me as extremely human. And when I say that, I mean, it was hard for me to put my finger on it, but there was something about the way that she was. She was not trying to make herself out to be some kind of teacher. She was not trying to make herself out to be anything other than how she was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she would like ask me if I want to get a beer, you know, she was just very casual and but also very normal except that everything was like the most normal or the most, you know, whatever she was feeling at the time, it, it wasn't, she wasn't trying to hide that or pretend like she was all cool or really smart or really wise. She just was who she was. And I think that that humanness, I just thought, well, whatever practice she's doing, I want to do because that felt just so real to me, um, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't inaccessible. It felt very accessible. So I thought whatever she's doing, I'd like to do. And that was kind of, how Zen kind of worked its way into my life, really through just seeing somebody who um, seemed to express it, not in an intellectual way, but just in like an everyday kind of way. Yeah, that's the way to go, right? Yeah. <laughs> Zen doesn't have much respect for language uh, and words, even though there's beautiful Zen poetry. Absolutely. That's the great paradox. Yeah. But the idea is transmission outside the scriptures, right? The texts. Yeah. Yeah. And about being honest, you know, and it's funny because I think like with, with making music, there's a similar kind of thing, right? Like you have to be really honest to make a good song. I think whether you're writing lyrics or writing music, the best things are when you can kind of directly get into it without having to, you know, frame it in some kind of other way when you're just saying you know like my favorite's not like dolly parton like i will always love you i mean that's like how much more direct how much more direct can you be yeah it's interesting that you're using the term honest that's very yeah. interesting I, and it, it covers what you're touching on in terms of being direct just like music itself is, is sound it's a direct unbroken line from the vibration to you right um which is yeah. unusual because Usually we're using the linguistic, analytic, discursive part of the brain, which yeah. is judging things and interpreting things. And, you know, you could call that an honest experience because it's a direct, you know, like the Zen people like to go like that. That's a direct yeah. experience, right? So it's interesting that you're using the term honest. For experience, which is concentrated, really, it's undistracted, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's just been my experience, I guess, that any kind of clarity that happens in my experience, in my practice, usually allows me to just be however I am in that moment. 
which I guess I interpret as, as honest. So doesn't mean that I have to feel amazing, but maybe just feel however I'm feeling or just see something clearly, you know. There's an element of spontaneity there, right? Yeah, totally. And I mean, and it's, it's funny because I, and I think back to, to DJing and making music, but DJing too, it's the same kind of thing. Like you, you kind of have to be honest and spontaneous to the moment of what's happening in the room that you're in, because you can have an idea of like, okay, I'm going to go in and play this set and it's going to go over down really well. And these tracks go together and these tracks go together. But as soon as you walk in the room, you know, you feel the energy and you see the way people respond and you have to just, if you can't look at it clearly and you can't see what's going on, you're not going to play a good set. If you can look clearly at what's happening and really tone, like, you know, tune into that vibe that's happening in the room, then you can play the right song at the right moment. And that's the same kind of thing. You have to be kind of honest with what's happening rather than and get out of what you thought was going to happen or what you wanted to happen. Mm. It sounds like a flow state, right? Yeah, in its best in its best moments, DJing can for sure be like that. And if you're standing up there with the Sultan, yeah. are you both in a flow state with each other? I think so. I mean, it's funny. We don't talk about it. <laughs> it would be kind of weird, you know, like if we were, I was like, hey, are you? Um, yeah, totally. I think that if you go to enough parties, you know what it feels like when it's like loose like that. You know, I say loose, but like, it just feels free. You know, you feel free to like, you're not going to put a wrong step because you're just so in tune with what everyone else wants. Right. It's kind of a suspension of the ego in a way, isn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's a weird feeling. It's a weird feeling because some, like you, you don't feel, you feel more connected. You don't feel that separate right. from everybody else in the room. And you don't feel even, you don't even feel separate from, you know, like when you play an instrument, when you start practicing and you start playing a lot, there's a weird thing that happens where you don't feel like like the instrument is that separate from you. Right. That actually happens with turntables, too, which is, I never thought would happen because, you know, I had that experience playing, you know, piano when I was a kid or playing in bands and jazz bands and kind of getting to a point where I could feel the instrument in a different way. And I never thought that turntables would be like that, but they are. Like, you can just... You just know when to adjust the pitch and you just know in a, in, a, in a knowing that's not intellectual, you know? And so it's weird to think back and be like, how did that happen? Because you can't recreate it. You know, you can't make it happen, but uh, it does happen. So it's interesting that you talk about connection. So I think this is something that meditation, mindfulness have in common with music, which is in music, when you're making music, or even I think in the audience, you're connecting with something beyond yourself, yeah. right? If you're in a club with, and you're the DJ, the audience is connecting with each other. And that's why I mentioned suspending the ego. It's like you're transcending yourself. And a very similar experience happens in meditation where you realize that what you think yourself is is an illusion. Mm -hmm. um, it's a half-truth. There's truth to it but it's not the whole truth. And um, the advantage I find where music falls short is at some point the music has to stop. Yeah. And then, you know, there you are, abandoned and alone again yeah. with that existential uh, angst of, you know, total loneliness. Whereas with meditation and um, in the different traditions, similar traditions, you're never alone. Yeah, and yeah, and I mean, if you ever stick around to the end of a end of a rave, <laughs> it's a little bit of a <laughs> it's a little bit of a, a crazy sad time. I think because without maybe being able to articulate it, I think people feel that a little bit that it's ending. Oh. that kind of moment. I mean, I have videos of me and Sultan in Buenos Aires, you know, in like 2008, playing this club there, Pasha, that was amazing, and it's like eight in the morning and the club had closed and we were all leaving and it's like total destruction. And it's kind of like, you know, everyone was on this high and, and just togetherness and then it kind of ends. So yeah, you, you're totally right. I think, and I think everyone knows that. And I think they don't, they might not even know why, but they can feel that kind of, besides just a good experience, you know, you go to a concert and it ends, you're sad, but I think there's something extra different and people really 
that's why people make a like a lifestyle out of it. You know, there's people who every weekend or every few months they go to fest, you know, because they they really want to have that experience. Um, I think it does an imperfect job of applying it or letting people have it, but I think that you know it might be an introduction for people to maybe feel something, a connection to something bigger. So what's happening now? I'm assuming that the same audiences that were there, maybe not as many, right? Because EDM is not as popular as it was two, three years ago, right? It's actually as popular, but it's more, how would I say it? It's more spread out over different styles. So it's not like there's less people going to electronic events, but I think the sort of hype over one specific style of electronic music that was really popular, you know, five or six years ago, that's died down. But the scene overall is, is quite, still quite popular. I mean, those, the, num- the numbers of the festivals of just keep going up. So, Right, but, but, but now you have, with the virus, right, you, you have much less of these live performances, right? Well, there's no, yeah, there's no live performances. No live performances. So the people that were relying on these live performances, I mean, the diehard, hardcore fans, they must be suffering terribly without having the ability to connect. Yeah, you know, it's a super interesting point because we're actually about to do a live stream. We've done a couple of them, but it's interesting because the live streams have sort of, for some people, become another kind of sub-community. Some of them are on Twitch, like we're about to do one on Twitch. Right. It's interesting because people use it like it's like obviously video, but it also has like a message board kind of on the side so people can chat while the stream is happening. And so it it creates this kind of little community where people are talking to each other. And I think some people definitely have been using the live streams and Twitch and, and these types of things as a way to stay connected. They're listening to the music so they can listen in their house and they can really enjoy it, but they can also like talk to their friends and be like, oh my God, I love, you know, like, so they can sort of still feel a little bit connected. Obviously it's not even close to the same experience, but it's a different experience. And I think you can tell that people, especially electronic music fans, really want to feel connected. They want to, they want to connect with the DJ. They want to connect with each other. They want to connect with all these things. And so they were the first, like the first people to adopt like all of these, like Twitch and all these things. They were like, right. I mean, they've always been on message boards, but that was like immediate, like, day one of lockdown, it was like every DJ is live streaming and all their fans are like, you know, in, in the chat because people, because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to stop feeling connected. It's, it would be kind of terrible. So, so in a way that's a very welcome addition to different ways that people connect. So now they can connect through Twitch and, and the like, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it will, when things come back, I think that element of it hopefully will for people who can't go to an event or whatever, I think that element of it um, will probably survive. I agree. And I think it may even be taken to the next level where it's virtual reality. So you could be in your living room, but you know, you're there with your friends and physically you're alone, but you know, through virtual reality, you're connected with all these people. Totally. I'm just wondering why it's taken so long for that to happen. I know people were asking us about it. I mean, we had companies approach us about this thing like eight years ago. I, I think that I think the, the pandemic did a lot to speed up that and make people realize that it's a thing. But I just think also, I don't think there's any replacement for the real thing. So I don't know. It's tough because there's so many other aspects, like there's so many other stimulating aspects of going out to a club or to a festival or to a rave that have even nothing to do with music, you know? I mean, I remember the first rave I ever went to, I was in France and I was 16 and I was living in this city um, in Brittany, two hours west of Paris called called Rennes. And they have this music festival every year. It's like three days. And so my friends and I were like, we're going to go. And I didn't know that Fat Boy Slim was playing and I walk in. It was like a, a big industrial space and there's like thousands of people there and there's one guy on the stage and he's DJing and it, it wasn't it was like a combination it was like the sound but it was also like the smell of cigarettes it was like the ambient noise it was like the way the lights were hitting it was so many different things that and, and like in that moment I was like this is the coolest thing I've ever seen 
<laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but it was like a full like 360 sensory like situation. So, I mean, I don't know how you could truly replicate that. I mean, a, a VR thing would be super cool, but it's like, there's just weird subtleties to it, you know, like. But maybe it's like every technology, like, you know, analog versus digital. Yeah. You know, nothing's going to sound as good as vinyl. It's just not going to happen. But yeah. you have other advantages. Yeah for having CDs or MP3s for that matter. When MP3s yeah. came out, they all said, oh, what a lousy quality that is. Yeah. And yet now it's the standard. But yeah. uh, but you're, you're talking about this amazing experience with the Fat Boy Slim party. Yeah. And then you go back to your room and you meditate? Well, I think at that time I was a little, that was a little prior to me meditating because I was 16 then, so I hadn't quite gotten into it. But many other... <laughs> Nice. I would come home from a club and then meditate. Yeah. You would meditate at night after DJing or or performing? No, I no no no. Before sometimes, yeah yeah. And sometimes when I travel, like when I show up in a in a city and I'm in a hotel room, um, I've I've figured out a good combination of pillows tend to be bad, so I find like some I order some extra blankets from the front desk and stack them up and maybe sit on some towels or something. And yeah, I try to sit when I'm in different cities. It helps me just kind of get rooted into you know where i am and kind of relax a bit well does it did you ever have stage fright by the way or anxiety or surrounding performing yeah i was super anxious before we started this truth this chat no no <laughs> i'm just kidding um well i'm having was, a panic attack right now as you're talking yeah. i i definitely have had plenty of anxiety before shows um i still do sometimes i think that that's totally normal um if you care Mm -hmm. um what i found is that the better that the shows went the less anxiety i had because the crowds became super receptive and so that felt very encouraging to me i think people experience anxiety for different reasons you know but i definitely get anxiety and what i but what you know not playing for so long like this pandemic we haven't played we haven't dj'd in like almost a year right you miss kind of miss the nervousness because you realize that that's means that you're excited which means that you know it's good (laughs) like Mm -hmm. um so in a way i really appreciate that feeling you know like running trying to run away from it or trying to make it go away is not gonna work so i've tried you know i mean i think there was one festival where we showed up and it was tomorrowland's version in the united states called tomorrow world and we were playing like this pre gig (laughs) and i thought there was just gonna be a couple thousand people there and we show up and we're backstage and i hear this roar and i was like what is going on i turned to the promoter and i was like hey how many people are here because they were all camping Mm -hmm. so i was like it can't be that many people right like maybe two thousand he goes oh you know like twenty thousand i said twenty thousand and I, I literally like grabbed this bottle of tequila that was right next to him, just like chugged half of it. And then I, nothing happened. Like I didn't get drunk because I was on so much adrenaline, mm-hmm. you know, once we got up there that I realized that like that wasn't going to help me at all. And so that was actually a good, good learning thing for me because I, you know. I would have tried to hide in the bottle if it was 20,000 <laughs> people. Out yeah, I had like a total panic moment and I like freaked out. But it ended up being like one of my favorite shows that we ever played. Everybody was so excited and instantly it was like you know feeling like you're part of the thing it was like instant didn't take any time at all so it ended up being a really great show and and really fun and and then when i got back to my hotel room i was totally wasted (laughs) but but it didn't kick in for like two hours so you Um, say you can't run away from it yeah so what do you do do you face it and say as you said before it's great to be excited so i'm just feeling this great energy of excitement because I'm going on stage. Is that what you do or? I think it's kind of going back to that honesty thing. Like it's there and that's okay. And yeah, if you can remind myself that it's there because it's a good thing and it means I'm excited and I care about what I'm doing. But also, I don't know, sometimes it's just, it's a good time to practice just trying to sit with it or just trying to be with it and just embrace it and not not have to just get rid of it. You know, just it's just part of your experience. But that takes a lot of training, doesn't it? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's not, and it's not like it, it, it can be overwhelming, and it can be really overwhelming when you're in a nightclub and people are coming up to you or not coming up to you. You know, like it, there's a, so many other elements, and so you're not. I'm not always in like a calm place to think like that. Mm-hmm. And there's been times where I've started DJing and just felt awful. 
like just like just like totally awful but i mean when you talk to i'm sure you've talked to a lot of people who are performing artists like the amount of times that people talk about being on stage and being like absolutely terrified is a lot more than i think most people realize and um it can be very very scary but i, I do find that dance music like house music specifically there's something about the repetition of the music that actually makes me feel calm after about 15 or 20 minutes so when I first started DJing, I would get really nervous. And then I always found that once I started playing, I just naturally calmed down because there's something about the beats that just, yeah, just kind of worked. I don't know. Don't they call that trance or something like that? I know. It wasn't, I think it's just any kind of repetitive music just is like that. And, you know, dance, dance music is super repetitive. So, yeah. Well, you know about the relaxation response. Tell me. Oh, well, it's the opposite of the uh, freeze or flight response. Oh, yeah. um, and it's based on repetition, which is, there was a book called The Relaxation Response, which was written in response to transcendental meditation. And he was trying to say, well, it doesn't matter what your mantra is, what you're doing, it's the mm. repetition that calms you down because it lets you know that there are no surprises. It's It goes back to when people were... Uh, sleeping outside, right? And right, yeah. you, you would hear all the noises and they were re repetitive, the crickets mm -hmm. and the cicadas, whatever, that was mm -hmm. repetitive. And when they stopped, that meant there was some predator on the ground, right? right? So as long as there's repetition, it's it's kind of biological, that repetition, which right. is why music is so, can be so calming. Yeah. Do you think, though, that your training, and I'm assuming, I mean, from what I know from, from the first time we spoke, um, yeah, you, you, you've seriously trained over a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, I've done a fair amount of practice. I've done retreats, but I've, I've always had something else going on. I've never spent more than a week in an intensive Well, that's good. Well, that's yeah. good. That's plenty. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely helps. I don't. It's funny, though, because it's like with performing and making music and stuff, like nothing can prepare you <laughs> for what that feels like. You kind of have to learn on the job. You know, like you have to just throw yourself into it. And sometimes it goes badly and sometimes it goes amazingly. And I think that, you know, my practice or, um, you know, meditation has helped maybe just give a bit more context for all that or help me understand it a little bit more. I would say it's helped in a certain sense of helping me let go and just be present in that situation. But I also think that just there's so many people who don't do that, who are able to do that. You know, I think there's something about performing and, and like we were talking about earlier, like feeling connected to other people. I think that, yeah, I think that people pick up on that, you know, and people learn how to do that and they learn how to get people to feel together. You know, when you see like a really great performer, I've seen, you know, some acts that I just thought was like, wow. But part of it is that they've been doing it for so long. You know, it's like, they, that's their practice. And then whatever other you know, religious spiritual practice they have, maybe that's informed that, but like their ability to really, to really be there and really connect with people and, and kind of get you as an, as an audience member, like out of your shell and into it. Like, it's just amazing. You know, <laughs> like I'm always like, Oh wow, that's how it's done. You know? Well, you know, you talk about the performer and you, you gotta say that I think Bruce Springsteen Yeah. and I'm not a huge Springsteen fan or a fan of that genre, but I got to admit, that his performing is incredible. And he writes in his autobiography how when he performs, when he makes music, he vanishes. He rises up, he said, and, and he vanishes into the music. There's no Bruce Springsteen there anymore. Mm, that's beautiful. But then he'll go home and the next day he'll spend the whole day crying. Yeah. And depressed. And so, so my question to you is beyond just performing in those moments, and and Springsteen, thank God, has enough um, cushioning in his life that he hasn't had to go to the extremes that a lot of performers we know have gone to. Yeah. Um, to to try and find some other kind of high. Beyond performing, how do you think, or do you think, that Zen has helped you in your life as a musician, or just as a human being? Oh, that's a good question. I guess what I would say is that, to use an analogy, let me see, can I phrase this? It's kind of like if you're cooking, um, and this might be kind of a 
crude analogy, but I sort of feel like you have like a non-stick pan, you know, and cooking on like a really great non-stick pan is really fun. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can cook everything and it just kind of like slides on and off. And like, and if you have a really rusty old pan that everything sticks to it, it's kind of a pain and, and just makes everything taste like the last thing and everything is kind of jumbled up and not really that clear. So meditation, you know, and then practice for me, it's kind of like a non-stick spray, mm-hmm. you know, that helps clarify and allow me to you know experience whatever i'm experiencing more fully just like as if i was cooking it would be allow me to cook whatever i was cooking the best and then it would be gone once it was gone and so the next thing would be able to be there great analogy thank you (laughs) seriously i totally get it yeah so it's kind of like it's sort of like a sub it's almost like a you know it's not a real substance but it's like a, a, a sort of substance that allows me to be you know honest and and clean and clear with my experiences of course like you know it doesn't happen like that all the time but i guess there's moments i could say i've had experience just brief moments where the pan felt clear or non-sticky you know and that was really great um but like a lot of the times it's a mess (laughs) so most of the time the pan is a big mess and i'm you know furiously scrubbing it right so i guess that's kind of the practice okay i was going to say before you said it was a mess that i'm feeling very stupid because we just got a nonstick pan. I mean, this is the <laughs> truth. We just got a nonstick pan. This is my first day using it. And I got egg whites in it and vegetables. And I figured, well, it's nonstick. I'll walk away. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I got distracted. And uh, the next thing I know, I come back and the whole thing is black. It's got <laughs> this covering on it. I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's a big mess. <laughs> it's just like you described. It's amazing. Yeah. But yeah, it also happens to you. Yes. Happens to me in my actual frying pan and in the frying pan of my mind. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it be great, really, if we could achieve that nonstick status? You know, it's super interesting that you say that because I asked that question to a Zen teacher that I did a retreat with one time from Japan. Um, he was a Roshi, a Zen master, and there was a time for some question and answer. And I said, I have been having a hard time because sometimes things are very clear, you know, like the pan is clear and sometimes, or most of the time, not almost all the time, it's confusing. But I said, but it's frustrating because sometimes it's totally clear and then, and then that clarity goes away, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, his response was amazing because he listened to me so deeply that I was very moved by, you know, I explained it in a much longer kind of way. It took about 10 minutes of me trying to formulate this question and, he listened really, really, really deeply um, to me like with his whole body, and it was really beautiful. And then he just said, well, I think I use the analogy, you know, it's like when you're congested, it's like sometimes all of a sudden, if you have a moment where you can breathe, you can breathe through your nose, like then then all of a sudden you're congested again. But I was like, once you know what it feels like to breathe through your nose, you're really frustrated that you're congested. And, and he said, it's, it's really great to have moments of clarity, but he said, if you're congested, then what can you do? And I said, well, there's nothing you can do. You just have to wait for your nose to clear up and he said yeah exactly so he said if you're congested then just be congested so if you're confused just be confused don't try to be clear and that was really helpful to me because i think i was like that just trying to think oh you know i had having had a few brief moments of clarity or kind of clean pan or whatever you want to say like i was like why is it messy all the time instead of just being like okay it's gonna be messy and maybe just not expect it to be clean all the time. Mm. Just maybe just cleaning it is part of it too, you know. So I don't know, but I, it, that 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 the idea that you don't have to expect if you have have this expectation that it's going to be clean all the time or that your mind is going to be clear um, all the time, then you're setting yourself up for a problem because it's it's not going to be like that. And it doesn't allow you to, yeah, it didn't allow me to to really experience whatever was happening. And that's the key. That's the key. Yeah. It helps to manage your expectations. Yeah. And that's really one of the great roots of contentment. If you can manage your expectations and, you know, when things don't go perfectly. Yeah. And the practice doesn't make everything perfect. It's just, you know, somebody, uh, Dan Harris has this great title 10% happier. 
<laughs> you know, it's, it, you know, and he says, "Well, it's really more than ten percent, but that's what he how he wanted to come out." And I love that, and I think it's so true. And I love what you said: things aren't going to be perfect. You know? Yeah, certainly not. And if anything, I think practice makes it really hard for you. Um, and I think obviously anyone who's tried to meditate or has meditation knows, you know, has a meditation practice knows that it's it's always changing and always different and often very difficult because you, you're able to see sometimes how things are and maybe that's not what you want to see, you know. And not to have expectations then when things, you know, you experience bliss yeah. and pure awareness that it's going to be the same way the next time you sit down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a hard one. I consistently struggle with that, like being able to let go of whatever just happened and in, in the zendo or whatever my last experience was you know i mean if it's my knees are hurting then that's easy when you're like, <laughs> like i was like okay well that one was done that's good but you know when it's something really great um that's hard it's hard to it's the same in music too right if you write a really good song i mean i'm sure you've felt this like isn't it hard the next if you if you finish something and you're and it's really good and you know it's really good and, and it does really well the next time you sit down to do something isn't it kind of hard to let go of that last piece yes. that you wrote? Yes. And maybe it's not the last piece. Maybe it's a piece you wrote five <laughs> pieces <Yeah>. ago. <laughs> or like 10 years ago. Or 10 years yeah. ago, you know. But when yeah, you've been like, doing it for a very, very long time, yeah. then you have confidence. You know, maybe yeah. this one isn't as good as the one I did five five songs ago, but the next yeah. one has a has a chance. Yeah, totally. Or like, or maybe you're just like, they're not all, like, they're just not all going to turn out like that. Like, you know. I mean, maybe there's some writer. Every write, every songwriter that I know, they write a ton of songs, and even the best ones say that only a small percentage of the ones that they actually write are, are they feel like are really good, and then even a smaller percentage of those are actually hits or whatever become successful, right? Like, so in a certain sense, like statistically, they write more bad songs than they do, or, or like it's a mediocre song than they do good ones. You know, John Lennon said, I never finish a song, I just abandon it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did we cover everything you... Uh, I know you didn't have any kind of... A, you had no expectations. I didn't know what you were going to ask me. No, this is very cool. By the way, you used the term chutzpah about an hour ago. Yeah, yeah. It just sounded very professional. Are you Jewish? <laughs> I am Jewish. <laughs> okay, so... Professionally speaking. Okay. I have a koan for you. You know, this one of these Zen stories. And then last time you told me one, it was a very good good one. Uh, do you want to, should we close with that? We'll tell each other quick little stories. I mean, I don't remember what I told you, but you can tell me, tell me the one that you were thinking. Wait, are you stalling for time? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, it's okay, you can stall for time. Um, no, I don't know. I didn't want to like say anything about, I don't know. But just tell me what you were thinking, tell me what you were thinking about. Um, about that, what what chutzpah made you think of? What chutzpah made <laughs> it made me think of this the story. This uh, let's call her Mrs. Gushman, and she goes uh, to a, a travel agency and she says, "I want to go to Tibet." And the guy says, "It's not a good idea. You go to Tibet right now. The Chinese uh, aren't you know too friendly. It's it's a tough place. Well, why don't you go to Paris, or London?" And she says, "No, I have to go to Tibet." So she goes to Tibet, she lands, she says, who's the holiest man that's still left in Tibet? They said, what's the High Lama? She says, I want to see the High Lama. Take me to the High Lama. You say, you can't go to the High Lama. Nobody gets to see the High Lama. I mean, you got to be, you know, a, a, a monk that's approved to see. She says, I don't care. I need, I'm Mrs. Gushman, and I need to see the High Lama. They take her to the, the bottom of the mountain. He's on the highest mountain in Tibet. And she says, I need a Sherpa. Get me a Sherpa because I need to go see the High Lama. And they said, okay, the Sherpa can take you up to the monastery there, but there's no way you'll get in to see the High Lama. You have to meditate for 20 years, fast for five years, and then you might get an audience. She says, listen, I'm Mrs. Gushman. You got to take me up the mountain. So the Sherpa takes her up the mountain. Same thing with the monastery and the monks. And she says to the monks, just go tell the High Lama that Mrs. Gushman is here. So the monks tell the High Lama, and they come back, and they look very confused. And they say... Oh, well, I don't know why, but he said, go ahead, go inside, go there. So she walks into the room, and there's the High Lama. He, he nods the head, says hello, and she says, Irving, when are you coming home? 
Your father is dying of anxiety. Where did you hear that story? I just read it in a book last night <laughs> called Motherless Brooklyn. It's very funny. <laughs> that's going to be, I'm not telling any stories. That's going to be whatever story I have. No, you told me a great, it was wonderful. It was, it was so appropriate. I can't remember what it was. Me neither. I don't know. Next conversation. Next conversation. I actually know there's a few Zen stories that really are funny that 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 stuck in my mind. We were talking about how we we like the Zen culture because of their sense of humor um, Mm. and the absurd. There's something funny about being in, in in a predicament, kind of, and I think you can always judge somebody by their sense of humor i think that was one of the reasons why i liked you when zandy introduced us i was like okay cool this guy sounds really amazing and interesting i want to you know i want to meet him but instantly you <laughs> I think you made a joke like in the first two seconds i talked to you and i said oh he's got a good sense of humor okay so we'll get along well you notice how these guys <laughs> like the dalai lama they're always giggling yeah yeah somebody said angels fly because they take themselves lightly yeah yeah so my teach that first uh teacher that i had at mcgill who you know, I first sat Zazen with and introduced me to Buddhism. He, he, he was a very strict, very serious teacher, and people were just terrified of him. I was very scared of him. Uh, I would, you know, when I'd go into his office, ask a question, I'd be very nervous. But he was also did not take himself too seriously, and he, he would, he would begin. He taught like an intro to East Asian studies class. So there was just like 300 kids in a big auditorium, you know, and it's like just sort of the basics about yeah, East Asian religions. But he started off the class the first day by reading the anonymous feedback that, not just the anonymous feedback that the students last semester had written from, but his favorite highlights of those of that feedback. And he read the good ones and the bad ones. And he like took an immense pleasure in, you know, had this like giddy smile when he would read these comments where people were like, oh, he's the devil, I hate him. Oh, <laughs> and all this sort of stuff. But it was so, he was so amused by people's feedback. Um, and, you know, some students, obviously, if you have a teacher and they don't give you a good grade or you don't like them, like, you know, it's anonymous. So students wrote some pretty crazy stuff. And yeah. um, he would just put it on like, you know, he put it on the projector and everyone would laugh. And he just was making it was the first day of class. He just made fun of himself. You know, it was really funny. Um, and wow. I think he, he's he's he, got courage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Major courage. And, and, it, and it was funny, too, because that was a side of him that he didn't even show that much because he's a very um, serious person. And um and often very strict. And so I just remember it endeared me to him very quickly because I thought this guy, even though he's really serious, he's able to make fun of himself really easily, like, like effortlessly, you know, way more than I was able to. Um, and so I thought, oh, that's, that's pretty special too. Well, in all seriousness, no joking around, what's the next step for Ned Shepard? What's, what's going on now? What's, what's your next step? What's, what's happening? I know that the, the virus is you know, throwing a wrench into everything. So what's what's next? Uh, well, we're just working on a lot of music. Salsa and I are still working on a ton of music. We have an album that we did during the pandemic that's going to come out. I don't know when this is going to get aired, but it's coming out in March. That was a really great process because, you know, the pandemic has been difficult for lots of people for lots of reasons and us not being able to tour I think we were able to take advantage of this kind of really quiet time where nothing else was happening. And we made music that felt very uh, honest and really, how can I say, yeah, focused and intent. There was an intensity going on um, while we were writing this music. And it's nice that, that there will be something good that's come out of this time, you know, tangible in that sense. Sure. Um, so that's next for us. And uh, then hopefully, you know, and probably some live stream sets, but hopefully that things will slowly start to open up if, if this vaccine, you know, really happens and um, we'll be back on tour. So that's that's our plan. We'll see what actually happens. But. And people could find you on Instagram, what is it, Salt and Shepherd? Yeah, right? Instagram, Salt and Shepherd. Um, they can actually text us. We now have a, a, a phone number that people can text us at and we'll text them back, which is really cool. Really, from, from Instagram? No, um, it's a it's a different um, it's a different thing called community, and we just really it's a way for us to be able to be more in touch with our fans. And it, it's funny, you know, because we started using it a few weeks ago, and we've already gotten people texting us. And 
it's so funny because I was just telling my girlfriend, like, when you respond to somebody on Instagram or social media, the response is very different because you immediately look look at them and look at where they're from. You look at pictures or whatever, you know, this is a text message. So when someone writes to you, you write them back without that kind of wanting to know anything about them, just really rep- responding to what they said. So uh, it, it feels different and it feels really cool. And so now we've been texting with people. Uh, we just gave away a puzzle. And <laughs> we gave away a puzzle and people were texting us about it and stuff like that. So I don't know. Yeah, it's really cool. So yeah, people can text us. You want to give out the number? Sure. What is it? It's 310-564-8809. Um, and, or it's, it's all over. It's pasted all over our socials. But yeah, people can text us and they write, you know, nice messages or they ask questions or whatever, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's pretty nice. Talk about feeling connected. Like, you know, it, it, it makes, it makes us feel connected and also allows other people to feel like they can reach out, you know? Beautiful. Yeah, it's cool. All right. Well, I look forward to the next time we connect. Yeah, totally. And, uh, looking forward to the new music in March, but I'm sure we'll be connecting way before then. Definitely. And, uh, so Ned Shepard, I want to officially thank you very much and look forward to the next time. Thank you. All right, take care. Thanks a lot, Richard.